Okay, so for tonight, Avery will discuss the history of labor regulation. Um, and then we have Alex that will speak on the history of independent contracting. And then um, RDU will take us um, through Prop 22 and the um, RDU project. And if you have questions, you can drop them in the chat and I'll bring them up at the appropriate time so everybody can get the questions asked and we can flesh out our discussion. So Avery, if you're ready, feel free to go ahead and get started. Um, this session is recorded, um, but otherwise, Avery. Okay, thanks, Leslie. So in two weeks time, California voters will decide the fate of Proposition 22. Tonight, we will hear from organizing Uber and Lyft drivers about why they oppose this proposition funded by their own employers. Now, even though I'm a pro-labor person, online, I've been inundated with pro-Prop 22 ads. I don't know about everybody else. I think it shows how much money these corporate tech giants are spending on the campaign. And those ads frame the issue as the need to loosen regulation on drivers themselves. So since this was a labor history forum, we thought we'd start out by stepping back and just looking at why it is that historically regulating employers, even as those regulations also regulate us as workers, has been something that working class people have fought to do. We fought very hard to do that. In 1938, the U.S. Congress passed the FLSA, or Fair Labor Standards Act. The FLSA included all at once the big three regulations that the labor movement had been fighting for for decades. The ban on child labor, a requirement for paid overtime over 44 hours a week, which is what it was at that time, and a national minimum wage. It's interesting to look at how this was achieved all at once. The previous year, 1937, saw the largest and most radical strike wave in US history to that point. There were over 400 sit-down strikes where workers occupied their factories, department stores, subways, and other workplaces until they won union recognition. The sit-down wave was sparked by the factory occupation at the General Motors Buick plant in Flint, Michigan, which held off police and National Guard deployments with the help of an armed brigade of strikers' wives, as well as the use of the plant's fire hose. And this caused General Motors, the world's largest corporation, and the anti-union equivalent of Walmart or Amazon or Uber or Lyft uh, today, it was the world's largest corporation, and it's the equivalent of those anti-union giants today. And they finally granted union recognition. And the other corporate giants, such as U.S. Steel and General Electric, followed suit right away. Socialist and Communist Party workers played leading roles in many of these battles. And those who had feared working class revolution must never have felt able to imagine it as clearly as they could that year. So in March of 1937, shortly after the events in Flint, 
the U.S. Supreme Court upheld Washington State's minimum wage law. It was a shocking five to four decision that saw conservative Justice Owen Roberts switch sides. The ruling broke the decades-long string of anti-labor rulings, which saw the court strike down a federal ban on child labor in 1918. It struck down Washington, D.C.'s women's minimum wage law in 1923. And just the year before, it struck down New York State's minimum wage law. So 1936, they said minimum wage was unconstitutional in, in um, New York. 1937, Owen Roberts switches sides. Now, it's not unconstitutional in Washington. The same year, 1937, the court also surprisingly upheld the 1935 National Labor Relations Act, passed two years before in the aftermath of the three citywide general strikes in San Francisco, Minneapolis, and Toledo. Many historians have speculated that Justice Roberts and the court switched sides to placate Roosevelt, who at the time, and this is interesting for today's climate, was threatening to increase the number of justices on the court to break through the conservative monopoly against New Deal legislation. Now this, historians have said this was why Roberts switched sides, and it makes obvious sense as one factor, but it also makes little sense to ignore the other factor, that Roberts, the court, and Roosevelt himself would have been very anxious to cool down the radicalizing working class. The point of this story is that when working people, when we fought as hard as we ever have with grand militant action that imposed our will on the entire political establishment like we never really have before or since, the fruits of that victory were precisely what? Labor regulations. The ban on child labor prevented employers in most industries from hiring children, and thus it also prevented and still prevents children from working as well. The minimum wage law prevented employers from paying less than the minimum, and as a consequence, it prevented and still prevents us from being hired under those terms less than minimum wage. The overtime law, on the other hand, has never prevented companies from working us as many hours as they choose, giving or forcing us to work more than eight hours up to as many as they want. The law did not outlaw that. It didn't take away that flexibility from them, but it did prevent them from paying less than time and a half for it. And in turn, it prevents us from receiving extra hours under those terms. What, now, so there were so many arguments against the FLSA that are just like those we hear today. One leading of the FLSA argued that the Roman Empire had fallen because it implemented economic regulations. In front of Congress, this was argued. Another testimony from the head of the National Association of Manufacturers said that the FLSA was a step in the direction of Nazism. Arguments against pro-worker regulations have repeated, at least since the 1930s, three central points, aside from the hysterical exaggeration. They say that they cause unemployment, that they hurt those they are trying to help, and that they are 
anti-democratic or lead to dictatorship. They made those arguments then, they make them today, really against mountains of evidence to the contrary. Because when we compare the society we had before 1938 and the society since then, it seems absurd to question that the big three regulations of the FLSA were a good idea. The decades following their adoption saw a steady rise of living standards across the US working class, even and including those workers who suffer from additional burdens of racial and sexual oppression. It's true that the weakening of the labor movement since the 1970s has allowed our conditions to slide backwards, but not yet to the degrees of child labor, extreme long working hours, and bottomless pay we saw before 1938. In an economy based on competition for market share, the pressure on companies to cut prices causes pressure on the compensation they pay to us. And that's whether we're classified as workers or independent contractors. It causes pressure against the reliability of our work schedules and on the space for our own voices to play a role in scheduling, as opposed to the fluctuations and unpredictability of peak demand in whatever industry we work. In short, it creates a race to the bottom. Regulations on companies like those in the FLSA counteract the race to the bottom. That's why they work. Now, all of this is just to give us background on labor regulations in general. But the general picture, of course, is never enough when we vote on a very specific law. So to get more specific, I will turn it now uh, over to Alex and then our other speakers. So, um, so my half of the talk is going to put uh, Prop 22 in some historical context. Um, I'm not gonna talk as much about um, the proposition itself. So in May, 1998, over 90% of cab drivers in New York City went on strike. 24,000 striking workers demanded a, a health care plan and protested against Mayor Rudy Giuliani's oppressive new regulations. It was the first strike in New York City in 30 years. Their union, the Taxi Workers Alliance, had just been formed three months earlier, organized by 25-year-old Bayravi Desai. The mayor cast the striking workers as dangerous, reckless drivers who opposed his regulations because they were afraid of accountability. Uh, the police commissioner compared the strike to a quote-unquote terrorist threat. This particular strike was a failure. The mayor ran through his proposed regulations anyway, and the drivers were forced back to work under the same conditions. But the newly formed union continued to fight for its workers, opening chapters around the country, renaming, uh, renaming itself the National Taxi Workers Alliance, and ultimately joining the AFL-CIO. When business declined in New York after 9-11, the union secured federal financial assistance for the drivers. And after another strike in 2004, the union won a fare increase and a larger take-home percentage, which worked out to an 18% raise overall. But Mayor Giuliani's harsh response wasn't only because capitalist governments always intervene on the side of corporate profit, and it wasn't even only because the city's taxi commission and traffic cops treated cab drivers as sources of city revenue, bleeding overworked drivers drive with fines and penalties for minor infractions. Cab drivers are an essential part of basic transportation infrastructure in any city. The work they do is an irreplaceable part of the local economy, not to mention thousands of people's lives every day. This is especially true in a city like New York, so dense that so many uh, that many people choose not to own a car. 
Or on the other hand, in a spread out city built for car commuters like San Diego, where people who can't afford a car rely on cab drivers on a regular basis. In some ways, the taxi industry before Lyft and Uber was a conventional business. That is, the cars were owned by the company and maintained at the company's expense. The number of drivers on the road was limited by the number of cars owned by the various companies, which helped ensure that they got enough work for their workers. Or rather, the workers got enough work. Uh, in areas uh, with a strong union presence, like New York, workers were able to bargain for benefits like healthcare, partially because of the central importance in the city's infrastructure. It was definitely an exploitative job. Drivers could work up to 12 hours a week, sorry, 12 hours a day, and only take home 12 to $17 an hour. But at least a lump sum that drivers paid to the company to quote unquote lease a taxi cab went towards maintaining and repairing the cars and handling logistics like car insurance. In other words, drivers wouldn't necessarily be out of work with no income if something happened to the car. In other ways though, taxi drivers faced, uh, taxi, uh, taxi drivers before uh, you know, the rise of these rideshare companies faced a lot of the same problems that Lyft and Uber drivers face today. The FLSA that Avery was talking about uh, doesn't apply to the cab drivers and the flat sum they have to pay on a regular basis to lease a car usually means that they only break even uh, near the end of a normal workday, which is what forces them to work these absurdly long days. Also, the nature of the work separates drivers from each other, making it more difficult to carry out large-scale labor, labor actions. In San Diego in 2009, led by Ken Ikefam, cab drivers went on strike for one day off a week, sorry, went on strike for one day off a week, sick days, better job security, safer vehicles, and more affordable lease rates. Some companies did lower their rates, the strike only took about 150 cabs off the road in the city with almost a thousand registered cabs. And companies reported that it didn't, the, the strike didn't disrupt service at all. So during all strikes in all industries, there will always be a short-term incentive for individual workers to cross the picket lines and pick up a little extra work. In an industry like cab driving, when coworkers rarely meet each other on the job, it's harder to organize mass actions and easier to throw strangers under the bus. This disunity is of course good for employers. So I know uh, you're all familiar with how ride-sharing apps work, but there are a couple things that I want to focus on. So compared to traditional taxi companies, a company like Uber offloads the cost of vehicle maintenance and repair entirely onto the drivers. This is extremely inefficient. A taxi company spends far less money on car repairs per car than an individual at an auto shop would. But more importantly, it's deeply unfair to make the underpaid workers themselves pay out of pocket for the expensive repairs they need to keep making money for the company. However, even though it offloads almost all of its costs onto the workers, it still takes a third of the fares that, that passengers pay. Because its workers are classified as uh, private contractors, Uber isn't required to pay unemployment insurance or workers' compensation. For the same reason, rideshare drivers pay both employee and employer payroll taxes. Like taxi drivers, they're also exempt from minimum wage and overtime laws. But unlike taxi drivers, they don't have a legal right to join a union. So even though Uber is sorry, offloaded its overhead costs and its tax burden on its overworked drivers, while still deducting a huge portion of their earnings, Uber still hasn't turned a profit, ever. How could a company lose money continuously for 10 years and still operate? Well, Uber spends millions of dollars a year lobbying for legislation, like Prop 22, that allows them to exploit their workers more effectively. Together, Uber and Lyft employ more lobbyists than Amazon, Microsoft, and Walmart combined. This control over politics has allowed these app companies unfettered access to most major cities. The number of rideshare drivers in New York more than tripled between 2015 and 2018, even as the city commission study found that 85% of rideshare drivers made below the minimum wage. Um, so I know you hard it is, or you've heard how hard it is to uh, you know, drive for rideshare companies, but it really makes you wonder 
if the company's basic business model isn't turning a profit and the drivers aren't making any money, who's benefiting from this? Besides, of course, company executives hauling in eight-figure salaries. Well, even if the companies aren't turning a profit for their investors, they're still performing a useful function for investors and employers as a class. That is, they're making strikes even easier to break. I mentioned earlier that taxi driver strikes were hard to organize, but at least taxi drivers generally used to work for a local employer who could be forced to accept specific demands, as in San Diego in 2009, when one owner lowered his weekly lease rates from $843 to $700 in response to a local driver strike. After all, a single local business needs to pay its administrative staff, along with overhead costs like the lease on the office, so that the bottom line is vulnerable to strikes. With Uber, with tens of billions of dollars in invested capital and no physical presence in most cities where it operates, doesn't face the same pressure. Not only can it afford to write out a potential strike, but it can also actively break strikes without any additional effort. As with the San Diego strike, the spread out nature of the industry allows workers to cross the picket lines with no repercussions. This was the case during the 2017 strike protesting Trump's Muslim ban when Uber turned off surge pricing at the airport. By lowering prices, they encouraged more customers to request more rides, offering more business to potential strike breakers, and actively setting against workers striking in support of immigrant rights. Similarly, during the strike in 2019 during Uber's IPO, when the company sought even more investment to prop up its failing empire, Uber reported no disruptions in service. More to the point, even though it's constantly losing money, rideshare apps in general are working to break uh, drivers' unions and prevent them from striking for better conditions at all. Drivers make less money than they have in decades, and any collective action they take can be immediately undercut by more desperate workers without the company having to lift a finger. And meanwhile, having undercut taxi companies by charging a fraction as much, these apps are putting taxi companies out of business and prompting a national epidemic of suicides among cab drivers. All this means that a handful of massive companies have total control over drivers' working conditions and pay. It also means that everyone who does business with those companies, either as a corporate partner, a client, or a customer, has access to driver's labor at a price fixed from the top down. But there is hope for the future. The fight against Prop 22, which is inherently a fight for basic legal rights as employees, has already brought together groups like Rideshare Drivers United. Also, the National Taxi Workers Alliance, still, still led by founder by, uh, by Ravid Desai, has grown since the New York strike in 1998. They now organize rideshare drivers as well as taxi drivers and fight on behalf of both groups of workers. The New, York chapter, uh, the New York chapter of the TWA has forced the city government to cap for higher vehicles and to force these apps to recognize rideshare drivers as employees. So just as Prop 22 shows that Uber and Lyft are on the offensive in their home state of California, uh, the New York uh, TWA shows us that we can take the fight to the employers home turf through organizing among our fellow workers and extracting demands directly from our employers by threatening to show them exactly how much our collective labor is worth. Thank you. Thank you, Alex and Avery. We have Erica and Terry up next. They're going to take us through a talk about Prop 22 and the RDU project. Go ahead and take it away. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the formation of Rideshare Drivers United and why it happened. Um, I've driven since 2015 and I noticed the first year um, my pay went down by 34% on January 1st at 12.01 a.m. So in the middle of our busy working night, busiest working night of the year, 
um, the rideshare drivers dropped our pay by 34%. And um, I know I was very upset about it. And, um, you know, I had no network of, of drivers at all. I just was an individual driver who was perturbed about it. And so when I saw an ad for um, RDU on Facebook, I, I reached out and contacted them. And, and then um, LA had started already by protesting the pay drops in, L in Los Angeles. They do it, some protests at the airports. And after I met with them in Orange County, um, I, I started the San Diego chapter and we started doing the same protests here. Um, and every year they keep dropping our pay more and more. There was like a dollar 83. There was a base pay of a dollar when I started. It was 25%. It was 20% for me. They kept 80 per, they took 20% and I kept 80%. Plus there was a dollar base fare and there was a dollar 85 per mile and about a dollar 30 per minute. So it was much, we were making more money then, but each consecutive year, they would drop our pay first year being 34% next, um, the following years would be by 25%. So exponentially, that's a huge drop in pay. So, um, and uh, the companies, I'm, I'm sure that the companies claim that they are broke and they're not making any profits, but they're making much profit. They're, they're, they're profiting so much, but they're, doing what I call mob bookkeeping, which means they're just reinvesting it into research and development and, and acquisitions. Um, I, I do know that a company who's broke does not buy another car company in Saudi Arabia. Um, it just, if you're broke, you don't, you don't make those kind of investments. So, you know, their actions speak louder than their words. They, they have money. They're not allotting it to drivers. They're, they're keeping it for themselves and building their company, um, which as far as labor goes, um, because they're not following basic labor laws outlined by the IRS, they are having an unfair advantage over other businesses, um, not just in California, but like across the United States where other other companies are forced to comply to the guidelines set up by the IRS. And Uber and Lyft um, have had a free pass by not having to follow those same guidelines and pay the same um, minimum wage and overtime and workers' comp and unemployment and even the, um, even the Social Security tax portion they're supposed to pay. So they've gotten a big free ride and with um with the stuff that different or driver organization groups you know there's rideshare drivers united there's gig workers rising there's mobile work alliance there's several groups out there but i know for a fact that um, rideshare drivers united has accomplished unbelievable things you know fighting against a multi-billion dollar company and so far winning, you know, it, it's, uh, it's, it's, even though Prop 22, whether it fails or passes in November, they're still, they're still accountable retroactively 
for uh, since their inception. So there's they've got the labor commissioner suing them for wage theft. They have three city attorneys, um, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and San Diego city attorneys suing Uber and Lyft for uh, misclassification of their workers their drivers and also the state attorney general. Um, Uber claimed over and over again that they were just a tech company. They rebuffed all those things. We're only a technology company. All we have is the app and the FCC shut them down hard on that. And they said, no, you're a transportation company. You know, you're not just a tech company. You have your whole, your whole claim to business is your drivers, your transportation company. So, They've had every, pretty much every major governmental institution um, slap them down. And, and they're still working on that now, but uh, their response to all of that has been Prop 22. And so Prop 22 um, is offering on the surface something that would look like it's benefiting drivers, but it's actually, like um, the the content of the bill versus what they're saying about it, the propaganda they're putting out about it are completely two different things. Um, what they're saying is that we want to keep drivers independent so they can have their flexibility and they can also have their independence and drive when and where they want. And they, um, what was the other thing, Erica? The, the other thing they're saying, the major thing, independent uh, they want to keep drivers independent and contractors and they want flex and they want to keep drivers no <laughs> okay yeah so um so we're off that's a, a small stipend from medical insurance that we're right. that most drivers will not qualify for and you know it's it's very subpar sort of coverage so they're offering peanuts basically um when it comes to to any of the factors um that they're saying will help drivers um it, it's not we know that it's not yeah so thank you erica um so the is is any of us know if you've been around and working for any amount of time any like number of decades um, you've seen the transition. You've seen the transition from corporations um, where it used to be insurance, health insurance was part of the benefits, right? It, it was paid for by the company and um, you paid your deductible, but it was, it was paid for by the company. Then it became a share of cost um, as time went on. And then it became um, like, you'll just have a group you'll be able to get lower wage, lower insurance pay, you know, pay less for your insurance because you're involved in our group. And pretty much it's like the companies now, it's your health insurance, you just get the group rate. <laughs> you pay for it all. And, um, and so with, with, and I've even seen with uh, the decline of dental and vision being offered for insurance is that, they have these programs they call insurance programs but what they are really is just like a you pay we'll give you 20 percent off it's a deal they make with with medical you know professionals and and um the people that are part of that that program get a discount like a 10 percent discount or a 20 percent discount off the full amount of the of the um, bill so that's what i suspect that 
Uber will be offering, Uber and Lyft will be offering to their drivers is just some flimsy, you know, program that gives you basically no coverage, you know, um, and, and, but they're not saying that up front. And they're also saying that they're going to pay like 120% of minimum wage. But what they mean for real on that is that they're going to pay 120% of minimum wage while you are engaged with the passenger engaged time, which means on your way to pick them up and on and during the ride until you drop them off and then it's gone. So if you are looking at trying to make full-time wages with them, you're going to be working way more than 40 hours a week to have 40 hours of engaged time. And I'm sure that their insurance benefits will be um, based on how many hours you work, but that's again, only engaged time. So there's a lot of deception in this Prop 22, a lot of fluff talk, which I've said Uber and Lyft are really good at, at giving us fluff. Um, and they say, oh, we're gonna do better, we've heard you, blah, 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 and then they change nothing. They change the color of the background of the app, or they change you know, something so insignificant that it makes no difference for drivers. Um, so Erica, I'm gonna, um, I, I, I'm gonna send it over to you and, and uh, you can kind of fill in the rest of it sure. well first of all i want to thank everybody for being here and to avery and alex and terry i mean i feel like you kind of did my job for you for me <laughs> you did such great research and um really great stats i'm just gonna add you know a couple of things and and some details um about Prop 22 and what it'll do uh, for drivers. So uh, UC Berkeley Labor Center has done a study and they found that if you're actually counting all of the time that the average driver works, um, Prop 22 would give us an hourly wage of $5.64 an hour. And so that's obviously not livable. Um, I'm here in Oakland now, and I have no idea how anyone would survive on $5.64 an hour. Um, Avery also mentioned that, you know, he's seeing a lot of, you know, everyone's being inundated by these commercials. And you turn, you go to Facebook, and there's an ad. You go to YouTube, there's an ad. You go in your mailbox, there's a mailer um, asking you to vote yes on Prop 22. And, um, I'm here to tell you they've spent $190 million plus to get you all of that false information. Um, and one of the points that we make uh, is that, you know, a lot of us are out there still driving and $190 million in the state of California would have gone a long way towards PPE. Um, it would have gone a long way towards keeping drivers safe. It would have gone a long way towards keeping passengers safe. Um, and so obviously this ballot proposition just flies in the face of logic, right? And just makes very clear how, how truly greedy these corporations are. Um, 
the LA Times, a lot of drivers are saying, oh, well, you know, I want to stay independent because I'm part-time. Uh, just in the past week, the LA Times released a, a paper, that, uh, an article that states very truly um, that even part-time drivers stand to lose as much as $190 per week if, if they're working 20 hours a week. And that's the average driver in California. And this is very true. Um, so what, what, you know, their narrative about this flexibility is just a farce. And as Alex mentioned, um, it's just a way to shoulder workers with the expenses of these billionaire companies, right? In the four years that I've been driving, I've spent $1,700 on a clutch. I've gone through two batteries. Um, I, you know, all of the oil changes, all of the car washes, everything that goes into running this com these companies' businesses, um, I'm paying for, right? And so some drivers think, oh, it's fine because I get this great tax deduction at the end of the year. Well, what's happening is we shoulder the cost and then transfer that responsibility onto the taxpayer at the end of the year. Um, and so not only are we as drivers subsidizing the companies, um, but so are the taxpayers, so are all of you. Um, and I will say that a lot of us are on um, the, the, the PUA, you know, because we don't have those unemployment insurance benefits and drivers are looking at trying to survive on $167 that is paid for by, you know, us, by the taxpayers. And, and that just needs to stop, right? So we're here to say, please vote no on Prop 22. Alex also mentioned that this will strip us of our organizing rights. We know historically, and I'm sure all of you here today realize that in the history of labor, um, people that work for unions um, generally make more money. And we have, I, I've been a member of two different unions um, where I had wonderful contracts and had um, wonderful benefits for, for nominal dues. Um, so I'm looking forward to that being the case here in Rideshare. And I hope that we'll get your support in voting no on Prop 22, um, not only for the benefit of drivers, but for the safety of our communities. If drivers can't afford tires, if drivers can't afford brakes, you better believe that they're going to drive anyway to feed their families, and you better believe that it's your lives and their lives that are at risk. So we need a no vote on Prop 22, also um, just for the benefit of our entire communities. So thanks again to everybody for being here today. I don't know who I'm supposed to kick it off to, but thanks for listening. Yeah, let me bring up a couple more issues. Um, that are involved with the problems with rideshare and why it's so important to have um, have drivers have a union and have be able to negotiate contracts because there are a lot of um, safety issues that drivers are dealing with as Erica mentioned um, she brought up um, how um, they're there's there's one side of safety which is not being able to afford to keep your car in perfect condition for road worthiness and the other side of that is a lack of protection for both drivers and passengers because uber is not required to follow any um, protocols and be accountable for any of the actions that happen in cars um, there is safety vacuums that they have within the way they do their operations um, that are very serious. Um, they, 
for drivers, they'll, they require us to give a, a full mugshot um, that's on our profile and they require our driver's license, our insurance, um, our, uh, they, we have to pass a background check and they check our DMV records. So we're vetted to get out there and drive passengers. Now, vice versa, the passengers, all they have to do is provide a credit card and they don't have to put their face on there and they don't have to do any kind of background check. They could be just released from prison. And I mean, they, we would have no idea who the passengers are. They don't require a background check. They don't require even just the driver's license or state ID. So we really don't know who is in our car with us, which means that if something were to happen, which has happened too many times, way too many times with drivers. Um, we always hear about the passengers that the Uber drivers are behaving badly towards, but you're not really hearing the volume. It's much more voluminous the way the passengers have been treating drivers uh, um, illegally or badly. Um, and, until, and one of the things that could be negotiated with a union contract is that drivers would have to have state ID um, drivers would not necessarily see that for privacy sake, but the but Uber and Lyft would have it. Now, should something happen, they um, they would be required to contact the police immediately, and um, they have that state ID so they can help the police find that perp, right? So there's there's that's just one issue to be negotiated if we had a union. Um, driver safety, there's driver pay, there's deactivations that are frivolous based off of um, not the company not um, standing with their drivers in good faith. It's one of those things, that's a legal term in good faith. You're supposed to treat your employees with in good faith. And if you are just dismissing them because a passenger wanted a free ride, you know, and they made some false allegation to a driver, now they're interrupts. They're immediately, immediately interrupts their income. Um, and they are left in duress, financial duress. And, and they could have been a completely false allegation, but they have about, um, they have 12, those, the people who do their background checks, they're supposedly experts, but they're actually people coming from backgrounds like a barista, they're, they're early 20s, they have no background in investigations, and they're given a caseload of 1200 or more cases a week to go through. So it's just for them, it's click, 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 click. There's, there's barely any kind of investigation that happens for them to meet their quota. So we're, we are hoping that prop 22 fails and that we have an opportunity as drivers, as a group, as a union to form, to form that union and then start negotiating some of these problems, these major problems that come with being a ride share driver right now under this business model. And I think that's it for now, but thank you. That was wonderful, thank you. You're welcome. So a lot of really great points were brought up and um, one of them, uh, for me at least, is the sheer amount of uh, money that um, Uber and Lyft are spending on their advertising, you're right. 
$190 million could have gone a long way here in California for PPE. Um, and especially PPE um, provided to drivers, right? Air filters or air purifiers for inside the cabins, right? Because you're within six feet of other people in the middle of a pandemic. And um, people that have been in these meetings before will know that I'm a huge advocate for information literacy um, for obvious reasons. Um, when we see those kinds of ads, there's usually a disclaimer at the end of the ad that says paid for by XYZ. And that's extremely important to look at for ads on both sides of the line, right? Um, and there's something to be said about, you know, the old saying of like, follow the money, um, because the money speaks and it is absolutely um, disgusting how much money they have spent on advertising. And, um, and I know I voted no, um, because this goes against everything that I believe in, um, and so I really am hoping for a positive outcome for November 3rd. But I guess my question, if I have one, is what other allegations or claims are being put into these ads that may hurt your unionizing actions later down the road? Okay. I think she was referring to the ads and, and sort of like the prop propaganda and, and what we should dispel about that. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Between the ads or the actual proposition. The biggest thing is that drivers want to remain independent and they want to maintain their flexibility, right? We all started doing this because we wanted to be independent from a nine to five job and we wanted to be able to go on the app and, and spend more time with our families. Um, and, and we did want that flexibility, right? At the end of the day, what you discover about this work is that you're, you're kind of in a position where you have to work when and where um, the demand is. And I believe that that will always be the case. Um, I think that, you know, based on Lyft and Uber's numbers, 96% of us do this for flexibility first. There are articles out there that will say, um, or no, it's, it's usually it's UC Berkeley again, that will say they're still going to have to offer um, a certain level of flexibility. Um, there is nothing about the current law that um, requires that they take away our flexibility. So when we're talking about the propaganda, this is the biggest point that we need to make, right? Um, they don't have to take away our flex flexibility if we defeat Prop 22. This is a threat um, made by the companies to scare both drivers and voters into having their way with us, right? Um, and, and they want you to believe that you're doing right by the driver by, by voting yes. Um, and, and again, it, it just goes to the fact that it's, it's sheer propaganda. They're always gonna be able and, and, and it'll be uh, legal for them to offer flexibility to their drivers. Um, th th that's the only card they've got left to play, right? Um, yeah. 
So we don't believe it when we have the, or, you know, the ability to organize for flexibility for our drivers, um, uh, you know, we'll get a seat at the table to negotiate what that looks like. Um, but this law would strip us of any right to have any conversations about it. And I'm not sure if anybody noticed, but it would take a seven eighths vote to change it. And, and, and that makes it near impossible for us to, to do any sort of work to fight for a better workplace, like Alex and Avery pointed out. So don't let, you know, the, the charade, the facade of flexibility uh, blur the lines for you. The fact is that um, AB5 is for drivers and, and we need a no vote on Prop 22 um, to continue for fighting for a better workplace. Yeah, um, also about the flexibility. We know, we know for a fact that their algorithm contains everything that the company needs in order to keep us flexible. Um, the platform has been an, as, as successful as it's been because it's worked for drivers. If it didn't work for drivers, and they couldn't do the, the type of work they're doing around their schedules, the platform would have never taken off because they wouldn't have enough drivers to meet demand. So um, the platform is successful because it works for drivers. Now, if they tried to turn that around and put drivers on schedules, it would be like herding cats, number one. And number two, um, they, they have already built into their algorithm that all they would have to do is add some tweaks to it to keep track of mileage. Well, they, they know mileage already on it. They, to keep track of overtime hours, they, to keep track of, you know, when do benefits, certain levels of benefits kick in, you know, those kinds of things, part-time, full-time, um, and uh, their, their earnings so they can pay social security all of it, taxes, um, you know, taken out. Um, so everything's there already. They, they, so flexibility is a big, uh, saying they're going to lose flexibility is a big farce. And the other big farce is that they're gonna, they, if they lose Prop 22, that they're gonna have to pull out of California. And that is, oh my goodness. Uber, this is Uber and this is Uber's go-to right? This is what they always say whenever a market that they're working in um, starts imposing some ordinances or, or laws that they have to follow. They, they're like a child tantrum, having a tantrum saying, well, if you don't give us our way and let us not do, if you try to impose those on us, we're going to just take our toys and go home, right? And um, the problem is, they never do that. There's only one market that they've ever left, but it wasn't because Uber chose to leave it. It was because they got kicked out because they refused to follow the law. And that was Austin, Texas. So, but guess what? They're back again in Austin and they're following the laws. So Uber's like, Uber's like some rich frat boys who think that they're exempt from having to follow the same rules that everybody else does. And they're going to buck and they're going to fight and complain about it and threaten that this is just, oh, you know, it's like the kid, I'm going to tell my dad, you know, it's like, no, <laughs> you're still, you're still required to follow the same laws as every other company business in, in, in the United States and in California. Right. So those are some of the two big, major misnomers that they're putting out. Um, first of all, 
180,000 um, towards a, a proposition is more than any bill in the in has ever had funded. That's the that's the highest funding anyone has ever had for a bill. So um, that tells you how desperate they are to not lose their massive profits, despite them saying they're broke. Um, and if they and if they really could do those things that they're trying to say they're going to do for drivers under Prop 22, why aren't they doing them now? Why haven't they been doing them? They don't have any intention of following through with any of them because there's so many loopholes in Prop 22 that they'll never be required to actually do the things they're saying they're going to do for drivers. They're not putting the full story up front, but that's politics today, right? So, okay, we can open it up if anybody has any comments or questions that they'd like to pose to any of our speakers tonight. Thanks to you guys. Um, I'm from, I live in New York, so I had actually never heard of Prop 22 until you guys started talking about it because I haven't seen it covered really anywhere um you know out here on the east coast i haven't really heard anything about it and like i'm glued to the news all the time so i think that's really interesting um i wonder if that's on purpose um because media companies don't usually cover big labor issues and obviously it's a it's a big corporate thing but you know i hope i hope it works out for you guys because um I sort of wonder, you know, if it does pass, if that'll start kind of like a domino effect, you know, maybe I'll try it in New York next or, you know, obviously there, it makes sense that they're trying to do it in California since California is the biggest state. Um, and the, the thing about, you know, threatening to pull out of the market, it reminds me a little bit of when um, you guys probably know when Amazon was looking for their next um, uh, headquarters, they almost moved into, um, Long Island City in New York. And thanks to some, you know, noisy people on the city council, it didn't happen. But it was kind of like, it's like, as if there wasn't any choice. It's like, well, we got to do it. And it's like, no. <laughs> so anyway, I hope I find it interesting that, that this isn't being covered anywhere outside of the, you know, California area or the West Coast. And I hope it works out for you guys. I think it's not being covered um, as much, but I know that a lot of states are actually watching closely to see what happens. Oh, I'm so sure they are. They, yeah, so that if we win, the, if we lose this, if they lose this proposition, then um, it'll kind of be like their motivation to know that they can win this if they do it in their state. So that, that's, that's one thing, you know, think about. Yeah, makes sense. And also, you know, there's so much going on, obviously, you know, the election, you know, the mess that's going on. So it's like, it seems kind of down the list for, for media companies to cover, but it's so, it's really important. It has a lot of implications. Yeah. Yeah. Quite a bit. Drusilla, did you have something? Yes. Hi guys. I, I know I'm late to the meeting because I just got out of the other meeting. Um, but I just had a couple questions. Well, not a couple questions, but just one question about the um, the uh, so we should be voting no because of you know I know we're voting no because of my union, but I'm just thinking 
who is uh, who is doing all these commercials? Because they have tons and tons of people doing all these commercials about because because of their kids and they need to be able to have that flexibility and stuff like that. And is that not true? Yeah. So Uber and Lyft put over a record breaking more than one hundred ninety million dollars into this measure. Um, we actually Ooh. saw um, some casting calls. We found some casting. Whoa. For these commercials um, wow. and while we don't you know we obviously want drivers to be paid for their time but um, yeah it was it was fifteen hundred dollars that they were offering um, I think that there are still some drivers that are confused right so, some drivers that kind of log on do a couple rides a month and they're like I want this to be flexible and the app's telling me all day that I need to, to vote yes to keep my flexibility um, so you know, it's confusing for you and it's confusing for other drivers as well. And, and that's by design, right? Um, they want you to think that you're doing right by drivers. Um, but UC Berkeley did a study and they're finding that drivers would, would average $5.64 an hour um, if this proposition were to pass. So um, again, we hope you'll vote no on Prop 22. Don't believe the hype. They spent a lot of money to to lie to you. And wow, wow. Here are your drivers here today to tell you that that Prop 22 harms us. So please support workers and vote no. I got you, girl. Thank you, honey. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Okay. Looks like Robert has a question. Yeah, I just wanted to jump in. Um, thanks so much, everyone. Uh, I oh, really sure. appreciated it. Um, I, I really appreciated the uh, um, all of the information, and and certainly I think uh, this misinformation campaign, you know, this two hundred million dollar misinformation campaign, is really, uh, as Erica just said, you know, the reason that it's so that. It, workers as the drivers as well as um, the, the public are going to be confused by this and they're going to think there's something at stake for them that like that they're going to lose out if this doesn't pass there's no doubt about it i mean you that's what we're competing with unfortunately and um the um the it, it's it's a campaign of threats as has been said right it's a th it's threats to consumer this started with threats to consumers immediately right it said we're going to pull rideshare out of california that was the whole thing, right? If this passes, we're going to, you know, like they're talking about AB5, you know, we're going to pull rideshare out um, if we can't overturn it, if we don't win our court battles. So they didn't win their court battles and then this prop comes up or whatever. Um, and, um, you know, but that was the initial threat to get people thinking, oh, we might lose rideshare, which is very convenient for us as consumers. And then on the other hand, the drivers are told, of course, that they're going to lose out. They won't have flexibility, which, you know, it's interesting because I think we all, it, it, you know, we think about, I mean, there's plenty of employees in a million different jobs that have flexibility. Like what, like where, where I was going to, I was going to ask this, like, what is, <laughs> I mean, what are the restrictions here on in employees for flexibility from the companies? We, we know that, you know, we know that you know, there's, you know, so many part-time workers out there uh, that have flexibility in their jobs and they can have it. So this idea that there had to be some kind of other things, but I really like the way that it was addressed, particularly, um, you know, certainly by Erica and Terry about 
um, you know, a lot of things about flexibility, which I think is the main argument that's being made, as well as the, you know, pulling out of California or whatever, uh, the threat to consumers. But as far as the workers goes, it's all that flexibility narrative is the core narrative that needs to be combated. And um, I also like what Erica said about flexibility is kind of a myth anyway, because you kind of have to work when demand is there, if you're going to make any money doing this. But that being said, again, and the idea that the business model itself worked in such a way because um, drivers could do it because it was flexible. So they'd lose a lot of demand. I mean, they'd lose a lot of their drivers if they couldn't be. So the idea that this will benefit them to take away that doesn't make sense either. I really appreciated those elements here because I think this is the main narrative that we need to um, combat. And I think, you know, there's a number of things. Um, I'm not going to ramble on here, but the, just to say that as far as, it, I, I can't speak to whether the company is profitable in a traditional sense or not or what, you know, but I could say that, you know, lots of these companies like Amazon that was brought up by Nicole, um, you know, they use the capital and investments they already have and they'll, they'll be willing to take, do things at a loss for, for a while if they can destroy their com competition, you know, the taxi drivers, if they can, if they can, um, you know, like, you know, Amazon's been able to get, you know, get a free ride in all of these different states for several years, meaning they pay no taxes to do, you know, they, they use their, they use it to get the market share. And then once they have the market share, they have that extra power that they can use um, to do things like this. And they're, they're using all this political power, they're gaining more political power, and they can afford to take a loss in some ways in profitability in order to do this, because they know just like Amazon, look at Amazon now, they, they're setting themselves up to be to dominate to be the main players and and kick everybody else out of the way destroy um, any kind of labor challenges uh, spend money on these kinds of propositions so that they can win state by state that's their goal so labor has to <laughs> labor has to to beat this back and it's an it, it's an incredibly important fight I think that labor has right now and uh, again thanks again. Everybody that's on this call and and, and th especially those that spoke today uh, on this issue. I learned a lot for sure. Thanks. You mentioned one thing about um, you mentioned one thing about threats, uh, uh, propaganda. Uh, uh, it's a bill full of threats and um, indulge me if you will. But um, there's a there's a strong comparison from uh, from how Uber operates to like a common drug dealer cartel. You know, they go into a market, um, they establish um, themselves there and create a need for the product that they're supplying. They get, they get the, both the drivers and the passengers addicted to using this model. And then when, some, when, when they operate long enough for you to see the problems in, in how they're operating, then when you try to impose any, any um, restrictions on how they're doing their business, then they try to, if I think I was frozen, then they try to leverage um, what your addiction to them um, to make sure they get what they want, just like any good cartel does that. So, um, you know, there's a lot of similarities to some very bad work ethic stuff that, that this company is employing. And um, 
Yeah, just keep 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 that in mind. Plus the fact, just the simple fact that it's a it would require a seven eighths vote to overturn it, which you know we've heard of like two thirds votes, which is hard to um, to get done to overturn something. What if all these drivers who are buying hook, line, and sinker the the um, propaganda that Uber's piping out to them? What if they find out afterwards? that it's not at all what they said they would do and it's business as usual for Uber and Lyft, they're gonna not be able to, to go back and overturn it. They're not gonna be able to reverse it at seven eights. And for that reason alone, everyone should be voting no on this because you don't know whether this is gonna be followed through on or not. And with the stakes that high, um, Uber has already so if Uber wins this and Lyft wins this, Uber has already stated clearly that they intend to branch out into other areas of work. Like they've already gone into Uber trucking, which people are and now truckers are having some issues with that because they're not getting paid the way they should. Um, they want to go into day labor and temp work and all this other stuff. And I just saw an ad recently for nurses, you know, per diem nurses. And, um, it's just, it's, this is a cancerous company. They're gonna metastasize and they're gonna go out into the general um, work arena and they're gonna permeate it with their bad business model. Now for people that are doing that business model, that's great because they are never gonna have to pay into the, the whole system that they're supposed to pay. So this is just a cash cow for them. Um, no regulations, no having to pay the right amounts to their workers, no protections for their workers, nothing. So that's, that's something that we can tell voters. Those are some of the conversations I've had with voters in doing um, phone banking with them or having. Speaking um, of, I was totally going to segue to that. <laughs> Speaking of conversations with voters and phone banking, Harry's uh -huh. right there for it. Um, I just put my email address in the chat. We have um, every day at 1.30 and 6 o'clock, we are doing text banking and phone banking. So if you could take a couple out of hours out of a day and help us with that, we would really appreciate it. Um, there's still a couple weeks left till the election. What we're finding now is that a quarter to a third of, of the people responding to us are letting us know that they've already voted. But there are still quite a lot of voters in California that we can reach and dispel some of the myths and the propaganda and the rumors about Prop 22. Um, so any day at 1.30 or 6 o'clock that you might be available for a couple of hours, we've got a great community of drivers there and uh, other volunteers. We had a bunch of tech volunteers today that helped us. Um, please, please email me and um, we'll get you set up on one of the Zoom calls um to it's super easy particularly if you do the text banking you just send 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 and 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 it's really kind of fun uh to do as well i don't i'm sure many of you have done text banking and phone banking but we'd we'd really appreciate your help it's 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 really helpful to our movement um and organizing and the future of labor
Yeah, and there's a, there's an app that we use. By the way, we're not using our personal numbers or phones for this. Um, it's an app that we go through, kind of like Represent Us uses Slack for that. Uh, we have our own so we have our own app that um, we will get you logged on to, and you can just use that app, and it's very simple. Everything's programmed in there, the script, everything. So. Wonderful, thank you. The analogies that you used were particularly powerful. Um, I just have to commend you <laughs> for um, what you said. Um, I think Maria had a comment or question. And if not, Armando does. All right, can everybody hear me? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, I uh, uh, just needed to ask you guys. Um, it looks like I. It looks pretty uh, dire for the no on on twenty two campaign. I really think this is this is probably going to pass given just to given how much uh, exposure the yes campaign has been in the media and everywhere. It, even in the Uber apps, in the in the in the um, in Uber, it, it's been just flashing up saying yes on twenty two. You know we're gonna we're gonna pull out if 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 yes if twenty two fails. And um, I just want to know um, if if uh, yes on twenty two passes, what is going to be your guys' next next steps? Yeah, so um, we actually, there was a week and a half ago, I forget who it was. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm reading so many articles. We had 39% yes, 35% no, and 25% undecided. Um, we've also, since then, last week, we had a huge action. There were over a thousand people. We shut down Market Street for an hour and a half. Um, so we think we're closing in on that small gap that we started with a week or two ago. Um, we do have um, some ideas, you know, the, the board just went over a couple weeks ago, um, you know, the, the four grid chart, right? <laughs> Biden wins and Prop 22 lose it, you know. And so we're, we're going over ideas as an organization. Um, there, we ha don't have anything to announce about that yet, um, but we are 19,000 members strong with Rideshare Drivers United. So we're gonna yeah. continue to fight for drivers when, win or lose. And um, we're gonna continue to find ways to, to have them supported as a community and um, we'll, we'll continue to fight back, you know, whether it be strikes, can, you know, more actions, um, whatever the case may be, but we are working on strategic organizing to combat, combat the possibility that um, Prop 22 may pass. I, I don't believe it will, though. We're very hopeful, and, and the mo more voters we reach, uh, the more likely it is that we can win this and, and, and stop Prop 22. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I just posted on Facebook, say no to Prop uh, 22 is a lie. <laughs> Thank you. They, they paid people $1,500. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm going I'm to hit up my Instagram and Twitter, too. <laughs> Thank you. So Follow much. me. It's under my name. My name is the first part of my email. <laughs> okay. <laughs>
I had a comment if no one else is going. Um, so one thing that uh, Alex and I didn't get to in our research was that we looked a little bit into independent contracting. We found a study from Washington DC from just a few years ago and there had been a significant increase of people who went from being working for a company to being classified as independent contractors. So they did a study and they looked at what happened to those people. And they split into two groups. You were, if you were high skilled professional, like a lawyer, then going into independent contracting was good for you. You made more money, but there was no middle. If the people who moved to independent contracting were either pretty prosperous, well-off people making in the hundreds of thousands, or they were lower income workers. They were on the lower end of the scale. And the ones on the lower end of the scale lost. They lost a lot of income from going into that type of work. Because the thing is to be an independent contractor, you can't make it work for you unless you've got, you know, rare high trained market skills, unless you've got social networks and capital that you can invest in it. Um, if you're doing it just as a small player, contracting for giant companies with no leverage of your own, then they take advantage of you. Yeah. And that's what Uber and Lyft have understood from the beginning. They could take advantage of individualized workers. I think what they never expected was that the independent contractors, who are, it's really just another name for workers, you know, mm -hmm. in this case, is that they would get together. <laughs> and so I'm really, I'm really heartened to hear that you guys have 19,000 members. That's really impressive well, that's and exciting. That's just our group. There's other groups out there, and not just in California, but in every other state. Um, Chicago has a huge group. Um, New York has a group. I mean, there's drivers organizing everywhere. And, you know, they, I think in the very beginning, if you listen to Travis um, Kalanak's interviews about Uber, you know, he talks about how, you know, when they were dreaming up the idea that, he, he was like, yeah, we don't want to buy a fleet of cars. We want to do this limo service because we're so sick of having to wait for taxis or, you know, so we want to have our own limo service. Then it came, then it boiled down to let's, we don't want to buy a fleet of cars and be responsible for those expenses. So we'll just get, we'll just do an app that, um, that hires on and independent contractors with their own vehicles. We'll just get people out there that are driving already onto our platform and then they can, you know, do a share of cost with us on, you know. Uh, so it started off like that and you can tell already that their wheels were spinning about how they were not gonna pay out on anything and, and bear none of the expenses other than just keeping the app going and their, their, their servers and stuff. And, you know, as time has gone forward, they've hired more people on, you know, to, to handle the hubs and the phone and the, the horrible thing that they call customer care. <laughs> um, but it's all third world. It's all, they've hired, they've fired a bunch of their, their these companies are, all about zero output and um, and maximum income um, return. So one thing I hear a lot about is uh, is AB five correlating with Prop twenty two. They are not attached. They they're not attached because if you if people are saying, well, we hate AB five, we don't not going to vote for Prop twenty two because we hate AB five. 
Well, AB5 is not where the buck stops. Um, AB5 is just a codification of the Dynamex um, lawsuit that happened when a company named Dynamex here in California decided that they wanted to save money and fire all of their employees and then ask them to come back on as independent contractors with no expenses that they would have to bear for these people. And the company was like over our dead body, the, the, the workers. And so they sued Dynamex for this and they lost. So AB5 is a simply a codification of that, that case into a law. But Dynamex based their entire um, lawsuit off of what the IRS guidelines say. So if anyone wants to get upset about why, you know, workers such as Lyft and Uber, why companies such as Lyft and Uber and Instacart and DoorDash and, and all these companies, Uber Eats, why those guys are having to start following labor laws, you need to just go right on trotting back to the IRS because that's where all of that was, was in, um, that's the inception of why we're doing this. Yeah, it's a big mis, it's a big confusion out there about it. But, you know, it goes back to IRS and that's, the, you, know, you really can't argue with the IRS. I just I mean, had one other point I wanted to make too, which is that it seems to me, I don't really, I'm not a tech person. But it just seems to me like Terry was just saying that these companies do so little. I mean, they have so little outlay and that, that's their whole selling point. We're not actually providing anything. It's more like they're like the merchant capitalists of old who all they really did was get in the middle of a transaction. They're just a giant yeah, middle, middle man. They're brokers, and, yeah. Yeah, they're brokers. And yet Travis Kalanick has to leave the company but he leaves the company as a billionaire. Yeah. And, and what do the rest of these executives make? Parasites. It's there's very little value that to the table. There's some programming. There's all this app stuff. But the people who do that program in those apps, they're not the ones with the billions of dollars. And you, you could. It's not that complicated. I mean, I couldn't do it because I'm not a tech guy. But there's plenty of smart people out there who you could pay a reasonable amount and cut out the billion dollar salaries and all of the hundred million, hundred ninety million dollar political campaigns and all the money they spend on advertising and just all that gigantic waste that they get from being middlemen. You could have cities set up their own platform. You know, maybe we don't need Uber and Lyft at all. These there should these should be municipal run services, and then you could take all that money you save going to the. I agree. To say, pay everybody overtime, give everybody PPE. I mean, the and, idea that well, that these first, companies can't afford to pay overtime, it's just ridiculous. The idea they can't afford to pay that—it's just—it's no, insane. Their their cost for doing their cost for for um employing people instead of having them independent contractors is in the millions, right? But their profits are in the multiple billions. So it, it's a complete farce to say they can't afford to treat us as employees. Um, completely, they can't. 
Sounds they a little bit like the health insurance companies. Oh, they can't afford anything. Either. I know, I know. I'm just saying they can't, you know, they can't afford anything either. So I've had conversations <laughs> with my insurance company who is telling my world-class doctor they can't do what they're doing. And I get on the phone with my insurance company. I'm like, I pay you over a thousand dollars a month premium. Don't you dare say no. You say yes, ma'am, and you do what they say. And sometimes most of the time I get them to do it just by yelling at them. But <laughs> yeah, you gotta do what you gotta do. But that reminds yeah. me of that. <laughs> Say how high? How high should I jump? You're paying me a thousand dollars a month. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a joke. Yeah. Well. Any other questions or um um clarifications on perceptions or anything about this bill or ride your driving in general? Do you have a website or somewhere that we could go for more information? Yeah, we do. It's I will called pop that in the oh. chat also. Yeah, put it in the chat. Yeah, Erica, thank you. And for anybody that can't maybe see the chat, it's drivers-united.org. Um, there is a join us option there and you can join as an ally. Um, you don't have to be a driver to be a member of Right Your Drivers United. Um, there's also a donate feature. <laughs> so if you're so inclined, um, we appreciate. That's a new feature, by the way. We're very excited about this. <laughs> so if you're so inclined, you, you're able to do that there as well. Thanks for asking that great question. <laughs> yeah. We also have some Facebook pages. You can um, join um, those Facebook pages. There's um, Rideshare Drivers United and then Dash um, San Diego, Dash San Francisco, Dash, or San Diego, Rideshare Drivers United Los Angeles. Erica, if you know um, the web pages, I know when, I, when you try to look up San Diego, um, it always tries to send you somewhere else, um, but it's Rideshare Drivers United space Dash San Diego. That's that's kind of how the format goes. But we post a lot of things on there about activities that we're doing, like rallies that we're doing. We just did a caravan from Los from Los San Diego all the way up to Sacramento and San Francisco, going through San Jose. Is that right, Erica? San Jose? Did you go on that? I think you did. Um, you participated in part of it. Um, but we we do actions like that where there's a lot of news in um, con in interviews that we post there that we've done. Um, what's what I think is really remarkable about what RDU has accomplished is we started off just protesting our pay cuts, and from there we buddied up with um, our local assemblywoman in San Diego here, Lorena Gonzalez. Um, she. Um, actually authored AB5 based off of uh, some other smaller, you know, type of businesses, but mainly Lyft and Uber who were, who were so outside of doing what labor is supposed to do. And from there, we got Governor Gavin, Gavin, Gavin Newsom to uh, pass, to uh, pass that. Um, and then we, we're able to get three major city attorneys as well as the state attorney general and the FCC. So for a bunch of ragtag drivers, we have, I, I feel very proud. Like we've accomplished more than I ever thought that we could, you know, and, and I'm very proud of, of 
not only our group, but you know, other groups that have participated as well. Drivers have really come through. Now it's just going to be about about the votes, you know, and who has more money. And you know, we're we're we feel like we're trying to hang in there neck and neck, you know. And so we could use all the help we could get talking to voters and such. But um, you know, keep keep your fingers crossed for us. Say your prayers. <laughs> yeah. Any last minute questions from anybody? No, but great information because I do a lot of phone banking for uh, the union. So, and we, uh, it comes up. Oh, wow. If you could get your union to do some phone banking with us, that would be like stupendous. <laughs> that would be really oh. awesome. Like I say, child, I ask. <laughs> right but i have posted on all all my instagram uh twitter and, and facebook already so that's good thank you so much yeah just so you guys know our union seiu local 221 uh opposes and it's told all of our members to vote no on yeah. 22 and uh you know when i see the polls I know from history, I remember various times where the vote went our way and the difference was like, was it a big issue for union members? Because when that, you know, unions endorse all kinds of things, but when it becomes an issue that, that a lot of union members are going to vote on, that sometimes upsets the polls and swings things in our direction. So maybe that'll happen this time. Ooh, and I, I just wanted, wanted to thank, uh, like, uh, Leslie for stepping in to do a great job chairing at the last minute. Um, Victor for setting up the, the Zoom and the tech side on all this. Uh, Robert, also known as Bob, who suggested this meeting in the first place. And Terry and Erica for, you know, I think you helped your campaign tonight, but I know you also are very busy with that campaign. So I appreciate you taking time to talk to us about it. Our pleasure. Yeah. You know, I got a, a, a mailer from the African-American Black Caucus, and it says no on 22. Yeah, I just got a mailer in the GOP, uh, and it says yes. They give a whole voting thing, like what to vote on. What oh. to and I was like, mm. but, no. yeah. But the whole Labor Council is saying no. All the labor uh, unions are saying no on Prop 22. You know, what we have to do is, is rebuild the reputation of unions in our country. Um, you know, some, some, some shady stuff went down some time ago, you know, with unions and not, not some at the time, not representing the workers, just taking the dues and stuff like that. So, but, um, but it's the work environment has come full circle back to where we desperately need unions. And so, um, I, I would encourage everyone that's part of a union, um, to, to, um, help rebuild the reputation of unions and, and their necessity for for good working environments in the United States. Absolutely. Yeah. That sounds like a topic for another meeting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having us. Thank you. This has been extremely informative and interesting. I really liked all of the information that you gave and we do have, let's see, 
Um, I want to thank everybody for taking the time to join us tonight. Thank you for your patience in my uh, new <laughs> posting duties. And I guess we'll see you next time. <laughs>